be here this Sunday morning. Glad that God has blessed us all with life and um, strength. I pray for the vast majority of us with health and obviously relationships with Him, relationships with one another. There really is no better place to be than um, worshiping God with God's people. Amen. I do want to um, let everybody know that this upcoming Wednesday is our split men and women midweek service. The women will be right here in the main auditorium. Actually, it's going to be flip-flops. The women are going to be back in the fellowship hall. The brothers will be here in the main auditorium. Uh, The brothers, we're going to be talking about uh, men's issues. The women are going to be talking about S-D-W-S-C. And I'm not supposed to say what that means, although... Today, I know what it means, but I'm not, I'm not supposed to say what it means. Sisters, come on out and figure out what that means, okay? There's going to be light refreshments, and what else? And that's it, fellowship, so it'll be a great time. Uh, last year, in Kennewick, Washington, a man frantically called 911 to report that his truck had been stolen. Uh, the police, they, they quickly began to pull surveillance videos from the surrounding area. And the rea- they realized that the man's truck had been stolen while the man himself was across the street robbing a business. <laughs> so the police came and they took the man into custody and his vehicle was never recovered. And we've probably heard a lot of stories like this before. Basically, dumb criminal stories, you know, where they're... Calling, I read about one where a guy broke into a house, he locked himself in the bathroom, and the person, the owner of the house came home, they're knocking on the door like, what are you doing in our bathroom? He's like, well, I locked myself in, I I called the police, the police are going to come any second now, and of course the police came and arrested him. Lots of just crazy, crazy stories like that, where uh, the, the, the victimization of a person has been mischaracterized and misunderstood. Um, Obviously, this man who had been robbing the business and had his truck stolen thought that he was the victim when, in fact, it was the business that was the victim. I bring this up because this morning, the the title of the lesson is Jesus, Victim or Volunteer? And we're going to be looking at a a particular instance in Jesus' life. Turn with me over to John chapter 18 where Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And even though Jesus is the ultimate victim in life, Jesus never is like this bank robber guy. He never has a victim mentality and thinks that he's owed anything. And I think that we can learn some great lessons from Jesus' life in this instance this morning. Uh, We are still in the last hours of Jesus' life. Um, Everything here for the last, what, three chapters, four chapters has taken place um, after the Last Supper in the upper room where Jesus washed the apostles' feet. And Jesus has told them that he's leaving, and because of that, they're all filled with anxiety. So Jesus spends chapters 14, 15, and 16 really comforting them from the anxiety that the disciples are feeling. So he prays this high priestly prayer in John 17. He prays for himself, he prays for the disciples, and he prays, obviously, For us too, which is so amazing, he prays a a projected prayer 2,000 years into the future for us, that we would be one. That's amazing. And so as we go through here, we're also going to see some things that John put into his gospel and some things that he left out of his gospel. 
that really shows Jesus' confidence in this situation versus his weakness. So please uh, pray with me at this time. We'll get into our passage. Father, uh, you are a great God. You're an awesome God. You're full of love. You're full of hope. You're full of passion. Passion for men. Passion for your creation. And we thank you for that. We thank you that even though we many times have turned our backs on you, you're still passionate for us. You still seek after us. You still long for us. You still want a relationship with us. And God, you've even communicated with us through your word, through the example of your son, Jesus. Please, Father, help us to see his example. Help us to see his love. Help us to see his mindset. And help us connect with you through him. Help us, even though we, some of us may have been victimized, help us to be like Jesus and never carry on a victim mentality. Thank you, Father, and we pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen. John chapter 18, short passage this afternoon, uh, verses 1 through 14. <clears throat> says, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden. And he says his disciples went into it. Now, Jesus here is obviously talking about the Garden of Gethsemane, where he had spent a lot of time with his disciples uh, during his ministry. Gethsemane actually means oil press because that's where a lot of the olives were grown at the time. You weren't allowed to have gardens in the city of Jerusalem, so they had them uh, across the Kidron Valley on the Mount of Olives. And they had many oil presses there. Jesus spent, uh, again, a lot of time there in the same way that olives were pressed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is about to be pressed as well. The Kidron Valley separates Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And during Passover time um, in the temple, it was said that there could be up to 200,000 lambs that were sacrificed in any given Passover festival. As these uh, lambs were sacrificed, obviously blood would have to be taken somewhere. And so there would be a, a stone basin besides the altar as the uh, sheep and animals were sacrificed. The blood would flow into the basin and then it would continue to flow on down from the Temple Mount into the Kidron Valley. And at that time of the year, it would have water in it and it would turn the brook or the stream red from the blood of the sacrifices. And so as Jesus crosses this Kidron Valley, I'm sure he's crossing a, a stream or a, a brook of red blood. And I don't know if the disciples saw the imagery that was there or not, um, but I'm sure Jesus had it in his mind. The situation reminds me of uh, David in 1 Samuel what, 15, after David is betrayed by his own son Absalom, David makes the same trek across the Kidron Valley as he flees from his son and he also has a betrayer. Jesus has Judas. David has Ahithophel. I believe that's how you say his name. And ultimately, just like Judas, Ahithophel also hangs himself. And so the, the, the similarities here are uncanny with what David did and then now what the son of David is doing as well. Verse 2 it says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And so Judas here is on his way with the soldiers to betray and arrest Jesus. Again, he knew the place. He had been there many times before. And it says that 
that they had brought a detachment of soldiers. The, the word in the Greek is actually a cohort. This word refers to 600 men. Now, whether the entire cohort was there to arrest Jesus, we don't know. Probably it wasn't all 600 men, but I think the point that John's trying to make as he writes is that there was overkill in the number of men that were there. They didn't need as many men that they had. And so the, the Jewish authorities had already gone to great lengths not to arrest Jesus in public because they feared a riot. The people loved Jesus. And the Romans knew that Jesus was suspected of possibly causing an uprising, claiming to be the king. And so that's why they had so many people in force to be sure that nothing went down in a bad way once Jesus was arrested. Verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And so it's interesting, this part here in verse 4, where it says, Knowing all that was going to happen to him. Jesus did not go into this situation ignorant. He didn't go into the situation afraid, like uh, off balance in any way. He knew exactly what was coming. And so everything that he did was thought through, was calculated, and he did it, and he did it for a purpose. He asked these guys, who is it that you want? He did it to direct the, the attention towards himself because later he was going to say, well, if it's me that you want, well, then let my disciples go. And so he asked them, what is it that you're, who is it that you're seeking? But when he replies, or when they say Jesus of Nazareth, and then he replies, he replies with the divine name. He says, uh, in Hebrew, it would be Yahweh. In the Greek, it was I am he, or simply I am. In the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And the Septuagint is the Old Testament Bible that the first century readers had and read, okay? So in Exodus uh, 30, what, Exodus 3, when Moses is before the burning bush and he asks God, who is it that I should say will send me when he goes back to save the people from Pharaoh? God says, I am who I am, right? Obviously, he says that in Hebrew, but when it's translated into Greek in the Septuagint, it's the exact same Greek words that Jesus is using here when he says, I am. It's also the exact same words that he uses in John chapter 8, verse 58, when he says, before Abraham was born, I am. It's a direct reference to Jesus' deity and him being part of the Godhead. He's basically saying, I'm God. Okay? Verse 6. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Like, what is that about? That's like some us. Uh, somebody, Ben, did you mention Mortal Kombat? Somebody mentioned Mortal Kombat. Georgia mentioned Mortal Kombat earlier on. And when I read this, I'm thinking Mortal Kombat, like Sonic Boom, like, you know, like, ah, like some kind of power is like coming off of Jesus and everybody falls back. And what happened there? I, I don't know. It really doesn't say. All we can assume is that Jesus is simply his presence. His confidence, his stature, his righteousness and his holiness in the presence of all these people when he claims, I'm God, had such an impression upon these people that they fell backwards and they fell down. Probably not in worship since most of them were not Jews, they were mostly soldiers. It was probably simply in fear 
of the man Jesus Christ. Verse 7, again he asked them, who is it you want? He asked them twice. Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one to those. I've not lost one of those you gave me. And so again, Jesus asked the second time to make it clear who it was that they were coming for when it was very clear that they were there for him. He uh, almost commands to let his followers to be released. And he fulfills what he had already said in John chapter 6 about him not losing a single one that had been given to him. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. And so Peter uh, came to this situation packing some heat. Peter was strapped. Peter had his sword hidden in his tunic. He was ready to go. You know, if this goes down tonight, he's like, I'm ready to fight. And that's admirable. I mean, we look at Peter and he's very impetuous. You know, some of us think, well, Peter's kind of silly. But actually, Peter's demonstrating a lot of courage and boldness here. He's surrounded by, who knows, hundreds of Roman soldiers all with weapons, swords, and everything else. And Peter is bold enough to pull out his sword and say, it's on! And begins to actually physically fight the people that were there. It's amazing. And you notice that Peter, uh, Peter's uh, stroke or, or blow was not a, um, a precise uh, um, shot to slice off the man's ear. Peter, I'm sure, was not that good with the sword. Peter was actually going for the guy's head. I mean, if he would have pulled out the sword and then, you know, just boom. And he's trying to split the guy in two. And as the guy sees the sword coming, he's probably kind of trying to dodge a little bit. And boom, his ear gets sliced off. But Peter was trying to kill the guy. He was serious. Which again shows the courage that Peter had. In, in earlier in John, what, 13, I can't remember, um, Peter had said, you know, if I have to even die with you, I'm willing to do that. And here we see Peter doing that very thing. Jesus sets an example by telling Peter to put his sword away. And we also know that Jesus, in turn, heals the high priest servant by putting his ear back on, as only Jesus could do, just put it back on and it was working again. It's one of those miracle things that Jesus was able to do. Um, But he does that. But the important part here is that he says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And he's telling Peter, he says, Peter, basically, look, you don't have to save me. You don't have to vindicate me. I'm not a victim. I'm choosing to drink this cup that the Father has given me. I'm choosing to be arrested right now. And if I didn't want to be arrested, believe you me, I would not be getting arrested right now. But because I'm making this choice and this decision to follow God's will for my life, that's why I'm being arrested. So put your sword away. 
a couple of points that I want to make this afternoon. First is simply not a victim. Not a victim. I was going to put a hashtag in front of that. Hashtag not a victim. Jesus' complete control of this situation is clear and it's evident. Uh, Jesus is not so much a, a willing victim as much as he is a volunteer. And nothing happens to him that happens to him happens by accident. Nothing is outside of his control. You get the impression that he could put a stop to it at any moment if he wanted to. And it was almost like they were asking permission to arrest Jesus. You know, he says, I'm he. They all fall back. And he's like, what do you guys want? Well, I think we want Jesus of Nazareth. Well, well, I'm he. Let my guys go. And then you could imagine them kind of coming with the handcuffs, the ropes or whatever. Um, Is it okay for us to arrest you now, Jesus? He's like, come on, guys, you can take me. Or however it went down. But it was almost like they were asking permission. And what John uniquely chooses to include in his gospel and also leave out in this gospel emphasizes Jesus' confidence in his control over his death. So, for example, John leaves out the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays three times, Father, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. John leaves that out. Instead, he includes Jesus' resolve to obey the Father's will. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? A much more confident view and perspective of Jesus in this situation. John leaves out the kiss from Judas when he betrays him. Instead, he includes Jesus taking initiative in greeting his captors and telling them, Who is it that you want? Jesus is initiating in the situation. Only John tells us that when Jesus answered them, they all drew back and fell to the ground. You don't read that in any of the other Gospels, which shows Jesus' power and his confidence. And John alone reports Jesus' command to the soldiers to let his disciples be on their way. Again, that's not in any of the other Gospels. All these things reflect Jesus' command and control of the situation that you do not see, not nearly as clearly, from the perspective of the other Gospels. Are you with me? Yeah. Great. And so the overall picture that John paints is one of Jesus' sovereignty over his arrest and his crucifixion. He was not a tragic victim. Rather, he was a volunteer who willingly laid down his life for the sheep. And it reminds me of Psalm chapter 2 where David writes and he says, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and show throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And so when are we truly victims? Jesus here was not a victim, okay? When we're genuinely helpless and have no control over the negative circumstances in our lives, at that point, we are victims. Someone breaks into your house, steals all of your electronics while you're gone, you're a victim, okay? There's a hurricane that comes through and your car is washed away, you're a victim. Someone rear-ends you while you're sitting at a red light. You're a victim. 
there are legitimate uh, situations of victimization in our lives. And I could go on to even more um, horrific circumstances than the things that I mentioned that go on in, in people's lives. Things like assault and abuse where people are incredibly victimized. Um, I was, uh, my parents were divorced when I was nine, ten years old. There was a long time that I felt like I'm a victim. I mean, what could I have done to keep my parents together? Nothing. What did I do to make my parents separate? Absolutely nothing. I was a victim of divorce, and many of you guys are victims of divorce as well, unfortunately. But as soon as we have some level of control in our lives, we are no longer victims, okay? And even if we have been legitimately victimized, it doesn't mean that we give in to a victim mindset and think that the world owes us. So I found this, which I thought was really funny. You play the victim so well, I'm surprised you don't carry around your own body chalk. (laughs) As the woman lies on the ground. (laughs) We've all heard the phrase victim mentality before, right? This is someone who seemingly is never in control. They're always getting the short end of the stick. It's never their fault. They're the ones who always end up with the teacher or the professor that grades too hard. Uh, Their tests are always the worst. My my teacher doesn't know how to teach. They have the worst bosses who's always a slave driver. Like, how do you always get the slave driver boss and no one else gets that slave driver boss? They can never get along with their boss. They're always complaining, always seem to find something that's not their fault. And Satan wants you to believe that you have no control. He wants you to believe that you have no recourse so that you grow bitter and so that you grow unforgiving. If you lose your job because you regularly cannot make it to work on time, you're not a victim. If you're failing your test because you're not studying and you're watching your favorite Netflix programs on and on and on and on, you're not a victim. And even though Judas went behind Jesus' back and the authorities wanted to kill Jesus and Jesus had never done anything wrong and he had just prayed three times to God to release him from the suffering and God didn't do it, even Jesus did not have a victim mentality. Jesus did not have a victim mindset. Jesus was the ultimate victim. None of us can claim to be a victim in light of Jesus Christ. None of us have been so uh, harshly condemned or in such a state of imbalance where something so horrific has been done to us while we've lived such righteous lives that we can claim victimization at the same level that Jesus was able to claim it. He had never done anything wrong, yet people were coming after him to kill him, and eventually they did. Jesus was secure, and he knew who he was. He said, I am. He says, I am the Son of God. And as Christians, for us, we have the same spirit of Jesus Christ living inside of us. We, too, are no longer victims As we are Christians. Why is that? Because we have control over our lives that we did not have before we were Christians. 
before we were Christians, our lives were out of control. My life was out of control. We were under the power of Satan and we were slaves to sin. And we did what we wanted to do. But now as disciples, we've taken back control and we've chosen to enslave ourselves to Jesus, which gives us really full control of our lives once again. We no longer call sin our master. It no longer tells us what to do. Sin no longer victimizes us. We used to say things like, you just make me so angry. Or we used to say, but I had no choice but to lie. I just can't help myself sexually. The temptation is just too great. Oh, well, they should have never brought that alcohol to the party. Those are the things that we used to say. But now we see that man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. We're not forced to have outbursts of anger. God's spirit lives within us. His fruit is self-control. We can control ourselves sexually now. No temptation has seized us except what is common to mankind. And what does the Bible say? God is faithful. He will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. But when we are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that we can stand up under it, which implies that we have a choice. We choose. And even when we are legitimately victimized, because there are plenty of cases out there like that, we're still in control because we choose to forgive, which is something that many of us did not do before we were Christians. And so we truly are victims no longer. We do what we do and live the lives that we live from the heart, out of gratitude for what God has done for us, Not because we're forced, not because somebody's breathing down our neck, commanding us, calling us six times a day, sending us text messages. That's not why I do what I do. You think I'm up here doing this because somebody's expecting me to do this? No! Trying to live for God out here. (laughs) Jesus saved us from victimization. And Jesus saved us from a victim's mentality. Second point, choose to volunteer. Choose to volunteer. Again, verse 11, Jesus says, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus saying, you don't have to defend me. I'm not a victim. I'm choosing to do this. There's power in that choice. Jesus had already prayed about it. He had already found resolve. And right after Jesus had prayed in the garden, Matthew records that he says, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. He was confident and Jesus had chosen to volunteer himself for suffering. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. He wasn't forced, pressured. He wasn't a victim of the Roman soldiers. He wasn't a victim of the cross. His death was powerful. It was full of glory, not just because of the humility that he had when he suffered, but because he chose to suffer. That's where the power was in the cross. It was his choice. It wasn't anybody else's choice. 
And Jesus used his power of choice and he took personal responsibility and we can do the exact same thing. Obviously, we are not God in the flesh. There's only one, and that's Jesus. But we are brothers and sisters of the Messiah. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we have the power of choice that came with His Holy Spirit. When His Holy Spirit came, came and dwelt inside of us, and that choice, again, comes with power. We don't have to live lives of weakness. We don't have to live lives of fear. We don't have to live lives of aimlessness. We don't have to live lives of insignificance. We have God-given power to choose now that we did not have before. We can choose to serve instead of feeling forced, pressured. Bro, sis, can you please do ABC, XYZ one more time? Twist your arm in order to do it. Instead of that happening, we can choose to say, you know what? I volunteer. I just want to give of myself. I just want to give of my time. We can choose a way out instead of sinning. We're never blocked into a corner, forced to sin. We can choose to be faithful instead of being faithless. And just like Jesus, we can choose to deny our flesh and give up our lives just like Jesus did. Because we are no longer victims. There's a time in my life, I think that I... I talked about it a couple of months ago when I was in high school and I was big on the whole uh, black power, Malcolm X, you know, and everything else that was going on. And I I saw myself as a victim because I was African-American and because of how some people did treat me bad, but how I perceived more so people treated me. And I remember I had to come to a conclusion and a decision in my life. Am I going to continue to live this way, victimized, giving all of my power to other people, letting other people control me like a puppet master, constantly living in this state of, oh, what are they thinking? What are they going to do? What are they going to say? How come I didn't get this? How come I got that instead? Or am I simply going to make a decision to say, you know what, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to live my life and live it confidently and live it securely regardless of what my skin color is or what I think people think about my skin color. Here's how you choose to volunteer yourself like Jesus. Four practicals and then we'll be done. Practical number one. Stop complaining. Stop complaining. Philippians chapter 2, do everything without complaining or arguing. All complaining does is reinforce a self-centered victim mentality. And if you're going through a hard time, look at whatever good, good thing God is teaching you through the hard time. I'm not saying that the hard time isn't hard. All hard times are hard, whether they're easy hard times or they're hard hard times, they're hard. I'm just simply saying that we complain about how hard it is. All it does is makes it even harder. And it reinforces this victim mentality. This leads me to the next practical. Be grateful. Be grateful. First Thessalonians 5 says, give thanks in all circumstances. That means the circumstances that are good, and that means the circumstances that are bad. Give thanks in those two. We have so much to be grateful for. Throw away the mental list of what you don't have. 
and write out a list of what you do have. Meditate on that list and add to it daily. Third, practical. Take responsibility. Romans chapter 14 says each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. None of us will be able to stand before God and say, well, so-and-so made me do it. Well, if it wasn't for such and such, I wouldn't have done. Blah, 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 blah. Each of us will have to stand before God. God will question each and every one of us. And each and every one of us will have to give an answer for ourselves. And listen to whatever God has to say as a result. Are you with me? And so responsibility is the ability to respond. If we're busy being victims and blaming people in our circumstances, then we're literally giving away our ability to respond to life's circumstances. And we're rendering ourselves helpless. But when we take responsibility by asking ourselves, well, what can I do? What control do I have? And taking that control, then we're exercising our power to choose and we're better able to steer our lives just like Jesus did. Last practical. Forgive. Forgive. Hebrews 12 says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Again, when we have a victim mindset, when we're not forgiving, when we think that we're somehow capped, then this bitterness begins to grow up in our lives. And not forgiving chains you to the people and the past situations in a negative way. And maybe you think that you have forgiven, but if the same thing keeps coming up in your arguments, right? Teens with parents, husbands with wives, wives with husbands, single people with bosses, whatever it is. If the same thing keeps coming up and you remember like the most intricate details of that thing that happened six months, six years ago. You probably have not forgiven. You probably have not forgiven. You're tied to it. And your heart will grow bitter over time and it will defile you. Forgiveness breaks the chains and it sets you and the other person free. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty. We're free at last. Amen. (laughs) What they've done no longer controls you. And it no longer controls your emotions. And so when Jesus.